And he is the beginning, or I'm sorry, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask your blessing again on this message, Lord. Oh, I thank you for your grace. Undeserved, unmatched grace. Your sin covers, your, your grace covers all our sin. No sin is outside the realm of your grace. The most heinous of sins your grace can cover to those who believe, those who come to you. We thank you so much for the sacrifice of Christ. Thank you. He paid a debt I could never pay. A debt he didn't owe, I owed. But he stood in my place graciously. He required nothing of me. He didn't require I clean myself up, atone for my sins, or do good works to prove myself. He simply called me in his grace, gave me the faith to believe, and lavished upon me, an undeserving sinner, the riches of his son. We ask you to bless our offering this morning, Lord, that it meet the needs of the church. We ask you to bless the message to come. May Christ be honored and glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 this morning. We're continuing our journey through Colossians again. We are picking up where we left off last week. The Lord knows what he's doing. I'm confident in that. We had a medical emergency in here last week that stopped the service. And uh, so we moved this, the message to this week. And uh, this is Reformation Sunday, and because I moved last week's message, message to this week, this week I'm preaching on the glory of Christ in his church, which I think is a, a more fitting Reformation theme than what I would have preached. So I think God knows what he's doing. It's a fitting topic. I'm not going to re-preach the portions I preached last week. I'm not going to rehash all that I started off with. We got it maybe about 12 minutes into the message, so I'm not going to rehash all of that. Um... But I left off talking about how things, all things, are created by Christ and for Christ. Uh, I talked about how the American church is too me-centered. It's all about us. Our likes, our dislikes, our comfort, our preferences, our style. We've lost the truth that we were created by God and for God. Um, our worship is self-centered. How often do you talk to people? Why do you go to that church? Well, I'm really comfortable with the worship style. You're, we're not, they're not there to worship you. You're not the one that needs to be pleased. Christ needs to be pleased. Well, I'm comfortable with the, the way he teaches. Well, it doesn't matter if you're comfortable with that. Is he teaching the word of God? Christ should be comfortable with his teaching, not you. But we're so me-centered, and so churches are catering to people's whims because people are church shopping based on their whims because they have this idea that it's about them. 
their likes, their preferences. It's not about us. It's about Christ. Church is about Christ. Church worships Christ. I saw a meme on Facebook once. I don't remember exactly. I wish I would have saved it. It said, uh, I wasn't too happy with the uh, worship at church today. And then the comment underneath says, well, that's good because they weren't there to worship you in the first place. Right? That's how we act in America today. It's all about us. You know why? Because the culture is all about us feeding ourselves, feeding our pride, feeding our, our, our um, well, find, I'm trying to find the word for it, um, feeding our self-image, finding our self-worth, you know? And so the church is trying to mirror that. Church is not somewhere we come to mirror the world. It's somewhere to, we come to remind ourselves we're not of the world. We don't do things like the world. Our lives are for Christ. Our worship is for Christ. We live far too often self-centered lives, not God-centered lives. This turns God into a genie who exists to make us feel fulfilled, who exists to meet our needs, who exists to give us what we want. He's not a genie. He's God. We exist for him not him for us. You realize that if God never created us and he didn't create us out of a need, right? The father, the son, and the spirit were not sitting around one, I'd say day, but really there was no days because there was no time, but they weren't sitting around going, boy, we're lonely. Let's create some people to keep us company. He didn't create us out of a need for us. We need him. He is self-existing. He exists eternally without anyone's help outside of himself. We don't. We exist solely at his pleasure. We need him, not the other way around. We've got to stop this me-centered thinking about God. We keep him locked away like a genie. We let him out when we think that we need him. We don't really wear our Christianity publicly, do we? We just, when we need God, then we, we pull him out of the hat and Oh, I need to pray now. I need need this. Let me pray to God to give me this. Well, our whole life is me-centered. And then a need arises, and suddenly we're Christians. Oh, let's pray. Oh, let's go to church. You know why churches are filled after national tragedies? Because people are me-centered. And now we're upset. Now we're scared. Now we're worried. So now we're going to go to church and seek God. But you're not seeking God for God. You're seeking God for you. Remember 9-11 and how quickly those crowds went away from the churches? Oh, for a few weeks they were there, and you heard stuff like, oh, people are really seeking God during this time. No, they're not. They're seeking themselves. They're seeking some comfort, some reassurance. Come to church the second Sunday of February when nothing else happened before that, and then tell me you're seeking God. Let's not kid ourselves. Isaiah 43, 6-7 says, I will say to the north... Give up into the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. We are created for the glory of God, not the glory of us. First Corinthians six, nineteen to twenty says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? 
which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If you're saved today, if you're a Christian today, you are not your own. You have been bought. You've been bought at the expense of the blood of Christ. So what does he say there? Glorify God in your body, which is Christ's. What we do with our bodies ought to glorify God because he has purchased us. He owns us. We are not ours. I keep emphasizing this. We need to understand we are not ours. We are, we are soldiers under orders. We have a general. Should I work here? I don't know. Ask the general. Should I buy this car? I don't know. Ask the general. Should I buy this house? I don't know. What does the general say? Should I go to this church? Does it fit my likes? Who cares? What did God say about it? Right? Should I move away? What did God say? If God didn't send you away, then God puts you here. If God sends you away, God has to... In other words, we're not our own. He owns us. He can dictate, yes, how we dress. Yes, what we watch on TV. Yes, what we listen to and put into our ears. He can dictate where we go to church, where we live, where we work. We are to follow Christ in everything. He is the center of our lives. If we're believers. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That just encompasses all of life, doesn't it? Whatsoever ye do, do to the glory of God. If you cannot do it to the glory of God, don't do it. There you go. People come up and say, Pastor, is this a sin? Is this a sin? Is this right? Is this wrong? Can you do it to the glory of God? If not, then don't do it. That's an easy indicator. You know why? Because I can't cheat on my wife to the glory of God. I can't watch porn to the glory of God. I can't cuss out a driver on the freeway to the glory of God. Right? Should I do it? Can you do it in the name of Christ? No? Then don't do it. Why? But I want to do it. We're His. That means His glory is utmost to us. That's our priority is the glory of Christ, not ourselves. But I want to do it. I don't care. You're not your own. But I like it. I don't care. You're not your own. We exist for Christ. We're not to follow our heart, which Jeremiah 17, 9 says is deceitful and desperately wicked. Boy, that's the, that's the, that's the, the tagline of this generation. Just follow your heart. I can't. I know my heart. I've looked in the depths of it, and it's scary. And it's not God-honoring. Fortunately, he gave me a new heart with new desires. We're not to follow our dreams or our plans. We are made for him. Every beautiful sunset is for him. Everything, all the time. When we glory in anything, we glory in him, since all things are by him and for him. In our text, we see the glory of Christ as it relates to his glorious church, which Paul calls, my jacket kind of blocked the microphone, which Paul calls his body, his body. The Bible treats the church in a special way. I want you to understand this today. It is the body of Christ. We often treat the church very frivolously in our society, forgetting the place that she holds. Christ died for his church. I want you to understand that. Uh, let's turn to a couple of scriptures. Ephesians chapter 5. Go ahead and turn there with me. 
Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 25, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but they should be holy and without blemish. Christ gave himself for his church. Go back to chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 22 and 23. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The church is the body of Christ. Yes. It amazes me how many Christians today, professing Christians, have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude with the church. I don't need Jesus. the church. I have Jesus. The church is the body of Christ. That's a, that's a, that's a crazy... I don't, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need Christ. I, I the church. I have Christ. But Christ, his body is made up of the church. He calls it that. He gave himself for it. Be careful with that. Hebrews 10. Go there. Hebrews 10. Verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Um, Hebrews, as I've said before, was written to people, to Jews, professing Christian Jews, who were being tempted to forsake Christ and return to the temple worship. Okay? So when the writer of Hebrews says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Who are the some he's talking about? Those who have betrayed Christ and gone back to the Jewish temple. So he's telling them, when you forsake the assembling of yourselves together, you are acting like somebody who has forsaken Christ. There's some pretty strong implications there. Christ believes in the gathering of the church. Christ believes in what we're doing here today. The prayer meeting, the service, the Lord's Supper, the fellowship, the service, all of that. Christ believes in what we're doing. Do we? Christ treasures what we're doing. Do we? I'm not trying to turn this into a doctrine of the church message, but I think we have to address some issues. Today there's a prevalence for a weak doctrine of the church. We've got to fight against that. We've got to stand against that. Because the Bible is clear on the issue. Often today, people don't join a church or commit themselves to a church. They don't give generously to support the work of the church. They don't even attend as often as they should. They kind of come and go. They take it one week, leave it the next. Come Sunday morning, skip the other ones. They would take it or leave it attitude. Listen, that attitude would be totally lost on the first century Christians. They would not understand our take it or leave it attitude to the church. We need to view the church as Christ does. It's precious to Christ. It should be precious to us. Before you say, and I know some of you might be thinking it, well, we are the church. Hold on a minute. The term church means an assembly, right? 
Nothing has done more damage to the doctrine of the church in the modern age than the term, be the church. Okay? The church is an assembly of believers. I went to church once, they used to say, as you, as you left the church, they'd say, now go out and be the church. I thought, you can't do that. Once we leave here, we're no longer the church, we're Christians. The church is gathered here right now. That's so what you hear from a lot of people is, well, I, I don't go to church, I am the church. No, you're not. Unless you're gathered with God-ordained elders, pastors, whatever you want to call them, in a church that can exercise discipline and submit itself to the word of God, two brothers at Taco Bell are not church. I had a friend on Facebook post that one time. He rejects the church, the gathering. He goes, my, my buddy and I were out preaching and we, were, we went to Taco Bell to talk about the scriptures. We had church there. No, you didn't. That's not church. Let me show you from the scripture what I'm talking about. Listen to this. Philemon, verse 2. And to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. So the church met in Philemon's house. He calls them the church in his house. Get that. 2 Timothy 1.16. Listen to this. 2 Timothy 1.16. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. So in Philemon's house, where an actual church met, he greets the church in his house. When he brings up Onesiphorus, he doesn't say the church in his house. He says his household. You know why? They were a Christian family. When they weren't gathered with the church, they were not the church. They were Christians. But when the church was gathered, if I leave his home, they were the church. There is something that is the church and something that is, something that is not the church. Now, I believe in the, there is a universal church. There is a universal body of Christians who are saved, called out of the world. But there is a local expression that we see clearly in the New Testament that is a called out assembly of the, the fuller universal church. There's a local expression of the church. And that is precious to Christ. That was precious to the early Christians. That is precious to a lot of people today who have to meet in secret for fear of being killed. It's precious. It should be precious to us. The whole be the church mentality has weakened the church and given license for Christians to live independently of a biblical church. By the way, we live stream our services. Let me just say, online services can be a blessing. If you have to work, if you're ill, if you're unable to be at church, it's not church. You don't have church on your television in your living room. You watch people have church. But you don't, you're not, if you're not gathered, it's not church. That's just the truth. It, there's a place for online streaming. I got a call in the office just last week from a man in, in Texas thanking me for our service. What a blessing they are to him. He can't be here. But you know, we're not going to pretend he's a part of our church. He's not. So don't substitute church. Sometimes you have to. Brother Tatsuo takes care of his mom. He can't be here at night. It can be a blessing to him. But Brother Tatsuo said, well, I'll just stay home. I'm just going to kick back in my easy chair and watch church online. I would confront him and say, Brother Tatsuo, you're in sin. You need to gather with the church when you can. 
online church is not church. COVID is really... So many people left... Well, so many churches closed down, first of all. Shame on every church they closed down. But shame on every professing believer who stays home now and watches on TV because it's more convenient. It's not about us. It's about Christ. And he has commanded us to gather. And when we don't gather, when we forsake that assembling, we are forsaking as the manner of those who have forsaken Christ. Don't do it. Have a high view of the local church. Go back to our text in Colossians chapter 1. We need to take the church of Jesus Christ more seriously than we do today. There is a biblical reasoning for being under the authority of godly pastors. There's a biblical reasoning for fellowship and corporate worship. Christ died in part so that we could do what we are doing here this morning. He died in part so that we could do what we're going to do tonight. He died in part for what we were going to do on Wednesday night. He died for the church. And by the way, be careful about bitterness against the church. Be very careful. Many people have been hurt in church. And they tend to use that as an excuse. I say use it. Because most of the time, they're just using it as an excuse to love their sin. And not be under the authority of the word of God. You know how I know this? Because I know people who don't go to church anymore because they got hurt in church. And my question then is, did you ever get hurt anywhere else? Do you still go there? You ever been hurt on a job? Well, surely you don't work anymore. Then you're right, you just get disability. You ever been hurt by a family member? Surely you don't have a family anymore, right? You ever been hurt anywhere? Has anybody ever hurt you out at the grocery store? You you stop going to the grocery store? No. We don't stop doing that stuff. Right? And the reason we stop going to church is not because we got hurt, because we love our sin. That's why. Be careful about that. Be careful about that. Using excuses. You say, well, people do legitimately get hurt in churches. They do. It's happened. Most of the time, I find, it's their pride that was hurt, not them. But there are people who are genuinely hurt in the church. Bad things happen. I've met people who were molested as kids on church buses. And so they, they struggle with church as an adult. Hurt, real hurt happens. It does. So what do we do? Forgive. Forgive. It's not easy, but it's biblical. We forgive those who hurt us. And we worship Christ. But when we let that root of bitterness towards the church get into our heart, it's a dangerous root to have in us. Be careful about bitterness towards the church. Uh, be careful. I, I get so, it's not just because I'm a pastor. I actually preached on this before I was a pastor. I've been in churches all my life, and I'm, people get mad and they leave. I've been mad at my pastor a whole bunch of times. I don't mean me, I mean my other pastors. <laughs> I've been mad a whole bunch of times. You know, you know what I didn't do? I, I didn't pack up and find a different church. Because I believe that I'm surrendered to Christ, and Christ hasn't told me to leave. And I've made people mad in my past, 
So even though I'm mad at him, I'm going to keep worshiping. And over time, that anger kind of just dissolves and we start loving each other again. But people, they were so self-willed. We get mad at somebody in the church. We get mad at something the preacher says. I'm going to go find something else. What, that suits your, your, your sensibilities? Then it's all about you. We're a family. Families, you, well, you, where, you know where I would be, church? If every time I offended my wife, she left and never came back, I'd be a single man. I would have been married for a month, and that was it. Right? No, but we're family. We're tied together. We're submitted to one another. So when she angers me or I anger her, you know what we do? We work it out and we forgive. Amen. The church is a family. Amen. The church is a family. They made me mad. Then work it out and forgive. The pastor made me mad. Then work it out and forgive. Don't be bitter against God's church. That's the body of Christ. And we may find one day when we stand before God that our bitterness was against him. Because he identifies with his church. Remember the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Paul could have said, well, I I, I haven't touched you at all. I've been persecuting them. He identified with his people. Persecuting them was persecuting him. Listen, being bitter against God's church could be being bitter against Christ himself. He loves the church. Don't get mad. You want to get mad and leave, I guess get mad and leave. But don't slander the church. Don't put it down. Don't draw other people out to follow you away. You're messing with something that's very precious to Christ. Don't do it. Better to forgive than to disrupt the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. Let's get into the sermon now. None of that was in my notes, so let's try to get back on track. Verse 18. And he, Christ, is the head of the body the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Let's break this down a little bit. He is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the head of the church. No man can claim that title. Right. right? Except that he tried to usurp God's place and God's authority. A pastor leads a church under the direction of Christ, but it is not his church. I'm not the head of this church. Understand that. I am bound to the word of God. If I sin, I come under church discipline. Right? Just like you do. You catch the pastor running around with a beer, the Halloween thing, taking his shirt off. (laughs) That's why she didn't get off my notes. I know some pastors who would say, how dare you criticize the man of God? No, no, no. No, no, no. I'm held to the same standard everybody else is. I'm not the boss here. I'm the pastor here. I am held, I am bound by the word of God. If I teach something and you say that is completely against scripture, you have the right to come to me and say, pastor, that is completely against scripture. Pastor, that is heresy. You know why? Because Christ is the head of the church. And you and I are subject to him. You're not subject to me. We're all subject to him through his word. The pastor's authority is delegated by Christ. They're not to be self-willed because they're to be in submission to Christ. Many pastors assume themselves the final authority in the church. They're mistaken. They're mistaken. 
A pastor is to be submitted to the word of God and to Christ. Turn real quickly to 1 Peter chapter 5. And by the way, a pastor is going to give account for what he says and what he does. I mentioned that last night. I'm very cautious. See, some of you think, well, pastor, you didn't answer my question. I answered with what the Bible said. We had a situation come up last night, the question and answer. And uh, uh, I, I gave an answer, and somebody else gave an answer. And the other person's answer, honestly, it was insightful. It was good. may even be true. But it was making co- connections to other verses that the, it just wasn't in the text. So I told my wife when we got home, I said, I liked his comment. I liked his interpretation. I think I agree with what he said. But as, the, as a pastor, if it's not in the text, I don't want to infer it. I don't want to say it lest I'm going to give account for everything I teach. So if you ask me a question, you say, well, pastor, you know, what, what does this mean? I, I give you an answer. You say, well, could it be connected? I don't know. If it's not here, I don't know. Uh, the question came up yesterday about uh, Jephthah in, in Judges 11. And the question came up about him offering his daughter's burnt offering. The question came up, did God accept the offering? I don't know. My answer was, I don't know, because the text doesn't tell us. It just gives us the facts of what he did. It doesn't give us God's perspective on what he did, right? So as a pastor, I'm very mindful that I am bound to the text of the scripture. And there are some things that I can myself look at the scripture and say, oh, this, this seems like it's connecting over here to this, and that's a really good thought. But if it's not in the text, I'm not going to say it from here, because I'm going to give it, I can be wrong, Right? I can get to heaven and be wrong. Oh, I was wrong about that inference there in the scriptures. But if I teach it to my people, I'm going to stand before Christ. I'm, I, I'm giving his word. If I'm wrong, I make him a liar. So I'm very, very cautious about that. Understand that. I want you guys, as we go to this question answer thing, which is going really well for us, understand that my answers sometimes may not be what you want because they're bound only to the text itself, not to my thoughts on the text. I'm very mindful of that. I don't want to stand before Christ having made him a liar on something. Very, very careful. Let's go on. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So these, these elders, these pastors are told to uh, uh, feed the flock of God. Notice it calls it not their own flock, but the flock of God. They're to feed and take oversight of God's flock. They're told not to lord over God's heritage, not to claim it for themselves. So the Pharisees were doing, by the way. They were claiming the heritage of God for themselves. Remember that parable of the uh, land owner that sent the, the people and the people who took care of the vineyard? They threw, cast out some and killed them. And they said, oh, there's the son. There's the heir. Let us kill him and seize on his inheritance. So a lot of churches today, I admit, where pastors are trying to seize on God's It's God's heritage. The pastor is not to take what is Christ's. There'd be examples to the flock. Beware of any pastor who says, do as I say, not as I do. I'm very mindful. My wife can attest to this. I'm very mindful that I'm an example to the people here. The things I do, 
say, the way I act, I'm very mindful that I am to set an example. I am to practice what I preach. I am to show you, not just tell you, what God, God's will is for a Christian life. I am to show you the Christian life, not just tell you the Christian life. That's a pastor's job. They're not to lead by strong word or barking commands, but by, by, but by being an example. They're to demonstrate by their lives how to follow Christ. I am not only to tell you to follow Christ, I'm to show you how to follow Christ. There's a solemn warning attached. When the chief shepherd appears, they'll give an account. He's the chief shepherd. It's his flock. Back to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 18. Colossians 1.18. So he is the head of the body, the church. It's his church. It's his church. Let's go on. Who is the beginning? This possibly speaks of Christ as the beginning of all things and his place as creator, although I don't think that's the context here. I believe it's speaking of him as the beginning of the church. The scriptures call him the chief cornerstone of the church. Ephesians 2, 19-20 says, Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens, fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We see similar language other places. First uh, Peter 2, 6, Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. 1 Corinthians 3.11, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. Our salvation is built upon him. He's the beginning, the foundation of the church. Turn briefly to Matthew chapter 16. This is Reformation Sunday. It wouldn't be a good Reformation Sunday without the scripture that's so widely misused today by Rome concerning the authority of the Pope. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some say Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The rock that Jesus says his church will be built upon is not Peter, right? The Greek words tell us that. He uses the term Petra and Petros, big, big stone, little rock. We're not built upon the little rock of Peter. We're built upon the confession of faith that Peter made in Christ. That's where he builds his church. We are saved by confessing Christ. He's the beginning to the church, both in its conception as well as entrance into the church. It's through confession of Christ that we are saved. Romans 10, 9, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Go back to our text. Colossians 1. So Christ is the head of the church. He is the beginning of the church. That is, the church is founded upon him as the chief cornerstone, and he is how we enter the kingdom of God, through confession 
of Christ as the Son of God. He goes on to say, verse 18, he's the firstborn from the dead. Christ is the first to be raised from the dead. Now, there was people in the Old Testament who were restored to life, right? I call those more restorations and resurrections because they didn't do it of their own power. They were restored to life by the power of God. When Jesus raised uh, people from the dead, they were raised by his power. Christ was the first to resurrect of his own power, of his own authority, taking victory over death. He's the first to rise, never to die again. All those who were restored to life died again at some future date. Christ never will. The Bible calls him the first fruits of those who will rise. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. His resurrection is a guarantee that we too will be raised from the dead. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to even to subdue all things unto himself. He's the head of the church, both by reason of being the beginning, by foundation, as well as confession. He's the first to rise from the dead, the guarantee of our resurrection. All this is summed up in the last phrase of the verse, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He is the head of the church. This is why he's preeminent. He's the foundation of the church. This is why he's preeminent. He's our means of entering the church. That's why he's preeminent. He's the first to come back from the dead, to take power over sin and death. That's why he is to be preeminent. He doesn't demand first place because he's an egomaniac, but because he's worthy of it. All things were created by him and for him. The Bible tells us that it's for his pleasure all things exist. By the way, it's at the mere pleasure of Christ that this church exists. If he willed it not to exist, it wouldn't exist. That means we're here for his pleasure. Not for you, not for me. For Christ alone. No human leader founded the church, died for the church, and no human leader can claim that by confessing their name, you become a part of the church. Men have long tried to assume this place from cult leaders like Jim Jones, who often applied the words of Jesus to himself before he killed over 900 of his followers. To men like David Koresh, others who claim titles like Pope or Living Prophet in the Mormon Church. That's the, the leader of the Mormon Church, is the Living Prophet. One of two things that all false religions have in common is that they claim that they are the one true church, and yet they all reject the testimony that God gave of his son. Scripture is not their highest authority. Their own church is their highest authority. The Watchtower Society made their own Bible. And for the last 50 years, they've been editing it every 10 or so years to edit out references to Christ as God. Sinful men have long paraded around in long, gorgeous robes, allowing men to bow to them and kiss their rings, claiming they share the glory of Christ, but they're imposters. None can compare to the glory of Christ. How did we go from Peter going to the temple saying, silver and gold have I none? To the person who claims to sit in Peter's position, sitting on a golden throne with a scepter, people kissing his ring. That's unknown to Peter. 
He wouldn't know what to say to that. Well, he'd know what to say. He'd probably overthrow it. Let's move on to verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, that is, in Christ. This verse starts off with the connecting word for. Okay, another way to say it is because. So I'm going to read the two verses together, adding a few explanations in so that you can kind of clearly see the reasoning that Paul is using. Okay, And he is the head of the body, the church, because he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in all things he might have the preeminence because it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Does that make sense? He is to have the preeminence because in him the Father pleased for all fullness to dwell. What does it mean that all fullness dwells in Christ? Uh, um, in the next chapter, uh, Paul mentions that all the fullness of the Godhead is in Christ. Okay? Uh, I don't think that's what the apostle has in mind here, and I'll explain why. It says that it pleased the Father that in him all fullness would dwell. Okay? In chapter 2, it makes reference to the fullness, uh, all fullness dwelling in him. It's the Godhead, right? All the fullness of deity, of God, dwells in Christ. But his divine nature does not exist at the pleasure of the Father. So when it says it pleased the Father that in him this fullness should dwell, I don't think it's talking about his godness, because Christ is God. He's not God because the Father willed him to be God, or wants him to be God. He just is God. So I don't think that's the context he's giving us here. He exists eternally with the Father. What this is speaking of exists because the Father wills it to be so. So it cannot be his divine nature. In the context of these two verses, the fullness spoken of is concerning the church. He is all things to the church. He is the head, the first to be raised and glorified, therefore our guarantee of our resurrection. He is the beginning, both as founder and by confession. He is the preeminent one, the one for whom and by whom the church exists. And because it pleased the Father that in him all fullness would dwell for the church. So it pleased the Father that all that the church needs is found in Christ. Understand that. That's why we have prayer meeting at 10 o'clock Sunday morning. You know why? Because all that we need is in Christ. And the Father has willed it to be so. So we go to Christ. We don't go for the world. We don't go to the world and ask them permission to exist. That's why good churches, good churches, didn't lock their doors when the governor told them to. Because all fullness of the church does not dwell in the governor of California Amen. or the president of the United States. It dwells in Jesus Christ. Amen. Has he told us to close our doors? No? Then don't. That's right. Don't. Because That's right. everything we need, we don't go to the world for permission to be Christians. We don't go to the world for permission to meet. We don't meet at their pleasure. We meet at his pleasure. Amen. We are here for him. And everything that you and I need is found in Christ. And the Father has willed that to be so. That we come to the Son for everything. Do you need financial help? Go to Christ. Do you need more holiness? Go to Christ. Do you have something you need to be saved? Go to Christ. Everything we need is in Christ. He's our captain, Hebrews 2.10. He's our cornerstone, 1 Peter 2.6. He's our foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.11. He's our confession, Romans 10.9 and 10. He's our substitute, Isaiah 53.5. He's our propitiation, 1 John 4.10. He's our cleansing, 1 John 1.7. He's our high priest, Hebrews 9.11. He's our advocate, 1 John 2.1. 
I sinned. What should I do, Pastor? Go to Christ. Confess it. Forsake it. He'll forgive. We go to him. How many people do you know? Or have you ever done this? I've done this. I've been in sin. And so I stopped praying because I'm just too dirty to go to Christ. No, no. When you sin, that's where you go. You go to Christ. Because the Father is pleased that all fullness for the church dwell in Christ. Do we have a heartache church that we're sharing together? Then let's come together and pray and go to Christ. Go to Christ. Everything that you and I need is in Christ. I'm not worried about anything. What are they orders to shut down again? I'm not worried about it. The fullness is in Christ. What if the finances dry up? I'm not worried about it. The fullness is in Christ. What if what if sin happens in the church? The fullness is in Christ. What happens if, if this happens or that happens or this happens? That? Don't worry about it. Christ is all things to his church. The Father has willed it to be so. Nothing will defeat us. We will exist and go on as long as Christ is pleased for us to exist and go on. Look to him. Don't look to the world. Don't look to the finances. Don't look to the buildings that need repair. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. He is everything to us. He has to be. He has to be. The problem in so many churches is that Christ is not their supreme treasure. Church, we must treasure Christ. If you're a believer, you ought to love the church. Christ loves the church. Those who love the church ought to love what Christ loves. Or those who love Christ ought to love what Christ loves. My wife loves the Raiders. You know why? Her husband loves the Raiders. She loves what her husband loves. I love my wife for that. But you know, in the same way, if Christ loves something, we should love something. God forbid the day that I look at something Christ loves and say, I can do without that. Something Christ died for, I can do without that. I don't need that. If, Christ, if it's precious to Christ, it's precious to me. Because I'm part of Christ. I'm united to him. I'm one with him. There are a thousand excuses not to be part of the church. But excuses will not stand on the day we stand before Christ, whose body is the church. Christ is the, is the supreme treasure of the church. He should be. Christ should be the supreme treasure of First Baptist Church of Lomita. If he's not, our priorities are misplaced. Our priorities are misplaced. Christ should be our treasure, church. We should love him, submit to him, follow him. He's not a a side dish at a meal. He's not an an add-on that we add on to our... He's not a culture that we are part of. He's our treasure. He's our life. Every day, all that you do, do all to the glory of God. Christ is the supreme treasure of the church. He's the head, our general, our commander. The church ought to function in submission to the scriptures. You know why? Because the scriptures are the word of Christ. You notice how the Bible is called the word of God and Christ is called the word of God? A church is what the Reformation is all about. A church that is not in submission to the scriptures is a church that is not in submission to Christ. Christ speaks through his word. We ought not look to the world for our support or our practice, but to Christ. Christ is the head of the church, and all things that happen here, Christ should be the center, 
the theme and the ultimate aim. Our worship should glorify Christ and our hearts ought to be fixed on Christ. The Father is glorified through the Son and the Son is glorified through the obedience and submission of His church. Let's make sure, First Baptist, that Christ is preeminent and our treasure because that pleases the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. The chance we have, Lord, to, yes, remember our heritage, but Lord, the center of all we do is Christ. Christ is the ultimate aim, the glory of Christ, the honor of Christ. You are our treasure. You are our riches. You are you are everything to us. Oh, Father, help us to be in submission to your, your word, your son. Help us to be, Lord, filled with your spirit. Christ is the preeminent one in this church. Help us to keep it that way. Help us all to keep our positions within a biblical view. Because you're coming back and you're going to call every church, every Christian, every pastor to account. Let us fear and tremble at that. Let us live every day in light of that coming judgment day. May we worship and live in such a way that we will not be ashamed before you at your coming. Bless us now as we dismiss. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me. We'll...